Well, let us open our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And I am very grateful to be with you once again. And, uh, you know, that last song, I just, I just love those songs that they take us through the entire Bible. And it is good to be reminded that Christ is the focal point, the center of all scripture from beginning to end. Even the great David was a picture of a better king. And that's what the children learned during VBS this week. It was a wonderful, wonderful week. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. This will take long, so we'll start right now. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. As you can probably tell by now, if you are looking at your notes, um, the only easy part about developing the sermon was coming up with a title. It's quite evident I didn't uh, spend a lot of time thinking about that one. Um, what was not easy, though, was the writing of the actual sermon. Quite challenging. So having a, an easy title um, offered no significant relief to the rest of the process. After all, we are dealing with the Ten Commandments. Uh, these words have been and will continue to be central to human life and flourishing. And so with that said, let me take you straight into my first point. I want to explain why this was difficult. And the first point is this, the obvious challenge. What is the obvious challenge? Interpretation. Interpretation. You shall not murder. Let me see if I can draw you into some of my thinking during this week and what will likely also be my thinking in the weeks ahead as we deal with the remaining commandments, 7 through 10. I want you to be a part of the process of interpreting uh, these verses. As I have mentioned uh, on repeated occasions, our Lord Jesus made it very clear that the Ten Commandments have a natural two-fold division. When asked about the greatest commandment of the law by a lawyer, Jesus was quick to say, first, you shall love the Lord your God, which are commandments one through four. And second, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, commandments 5 through 10. So the first table of the law deals with our love for God, and the second table of the law deals with our love for our fellow men. The division is quite clear. Later on, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 13, verse 9, for the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I want to point out that the language, though clear in itself, does present a challenge for interpretation. 
as I study the Ten Commandments, especially the second table of the law, here's the question that I keep asking myself. If the second table of the law, Commandments 5 through 10, if that table of the law is summed up in the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as both Jesus and Paul made very clear, then why are most of these commandments written in the negative rather than in the positive? Why are they written, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not? Here's what I mean. It would, rather, it would seem rather strange if I were to say this to someone. I love you as I love myself, as clearly shown in the fact that I haven't murdered you. Right? Can you imagine a wife asking her husband, how do I know that you love me, honey? And him saying, well, I haven't murdered you, sweetie. What more evidence do you need? What do you, how do you respond to that, right? So the reason I'm, asking, I'm saying those things is because I want to give you some perspective on this commandment as well as the remaining four. I want to state the obvious. There's much, much more to these commandments than initially meets the eye. All the you shall not commandments necessarily carry a heavier weight. They possess a deeper meaning and they call for a broader application than what we might initially think. So that is the challenge of interpretation. What do we do? Well, this leads us to our second point for this morning, the necessary approach. The necessary approach. What is the necessary approach? We must have a biblical theology of murder. We must develop, we must have a biblical theology of murder. We must understand what the Bible says about murder as a whole. For centuries, Christians have understood that any time one of the commandments says, you shall not, you must also see the words, you shall. You shall. How can we reach that conclusion? Isn't the commandment, you shall not murder, quite straightforward? Yes, it is straightforward. However, we also know that love for neighbor involves so much more. Just the cursory reading of 1 Corinthians 13 indicates both the passive and the active sides of Christian love. Therefore, there must be also a passive and active side to the commandments dealing with our love for neighbor. Commandments 5 through 10 are no exception to this rule. In every single one of the Ten Commandments, there are two sides. What we abstain from and what we must do. Consider how the Westminster Larger Catechism explains the Sixth Commandment. In case you don't know, a catechism is a teaching tool that has been used for centuries by Christians, and it uses the method of asking or doing question and answer to help with memorization. When it comes to the Sixth Commandment, the catechism poses three questions. The first one is obvious and easy. What is the sixth commandment? The answer, you shall not murder. The second question in the catechism gets a bit more involved than that. Notice how they ask the second question in the catechism. Here's the question. What are the duties, duties required in the sixth 
commandment. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Did you hear the language in the question? What does the question reveal? Well, the question itself reveals that these Christians of centuries past understood the sixth commandment to be more than just the call to abstain from doing certain evil, namely murder. They understood that behind the words, you shall not kill, there are also required responsibilities. Well then, what are those responsibilities in the sixth commandment? Here is what they wrote in the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I quote, the duties required in the sixth commandment are, and pay attention to these, all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat and drink and medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and returning good for evil, comforting and assisting the distress, and protecting and defending the innocent, end quote. Did you memorize all that? You shall not murder. They got all that from you shall not murder. See, now we're getting somewhere. Clearly, our brothers and sisters from ages past understood that the words you shall not involve much more than simply avoiding one particular kind of evil. Nevertheless, none of this negates the fact that you shall not murder also involves doing, not doing certain things, as proving, pr proven by the third question in the catechism, which is as follows. What are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? So now they go into the negative aspect. Once again, did you notice something about that question? What are the sins forbidden is written in the plural. But isn't the sixth commandment just forbidding one sin? Well, clearly not. Here's how the catechism answer the question. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any, end quote. In other words, the sixth commandment forbids one sin 
with multiple, multiple practical implications. The past generation of believers wrote those words because they were convinced of one critical principle of interpretation of scripture, and it is this. No text of scripture should be understood in isolation from the rest of scripture. This is why they wrote two full paragraphs about one single commandment. And as they studied the scriptures, more and more is uncovered as to what one single commandment actually means. So let me see if I can offer you a few sub points in your notes that are meant to serve as building blocks for developing our theology of murder. These are some of the convictions that Christians in the past have held, all of which contribute to a more robust view of the sixth commandment. Here's the first building block for a theology of murder. First, the biblical understanding of murder takes into account man's uniqueness. The biblical understanding of murder must take into account men's uniqueness, uniqueness. Murder is evil because of the uniqueness of man. And we are unique in two primary ways. First, we are unique in terms of our human essence, the essence of who we are. We bear in ourselves the image of God. Humanity was created by God to exercise dominion and to rule over everything else in creation, which is one of the direct and immediate applications of what it means to be created in God's image. Just as God exercises dominion over all things, so humans have been given that privilege within the sphere of creation. Therefore, all of all created things, only humans bear the image of God. That's the first consideration when it comes to murder. The second is this, man is unique in terms of his stewardship. Stewardship. What is that stewardship? Well, as the pinnacle of creation, man is to give order to the world, which also implies that man has been given an intrinsic and deep-seated sense of justice. Justice. We naturally, because we have been created unique, we naturally want to reward good and punish evil. Therefore, a biblical understanding of murder must involve the quest for the preservation of justice and the promotion of good within any given society. This is why institutions such as the police must exist. They must exist. And all talks about defunding it are nonsensical. Why? Because we are made with an intrinsic and deep-seated sense of justice, which is necessary for the flourishing of any human society. However, justice assumes or presupposes the second building block of our biblical theology of murder. What is the second building block? The biblical understanding of murder takes into account man's fallenness. Man's fallenness. This is why we need the police. This is why we need the police. And let me clarify that this is not a political statement. It is a Christian conviction. 
the fallenness of man means that man will want to kill. The fallenness of man means that man needs to be restrained from killing. And the fallenness of man means that man must be punished when he does kill unlawfully. Hence, Paul's words to the Romans when he said that those in authority must be feared. They must be feared. Why? Because they bear the sword. They are avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The sword is not just for threatening. The sword actually kills. This is partly why the writers of the catechism that I quoted earlier made provision for a type of killing that is righteous and proper. Righteous and proper. Dutch theologian J. Dumas is helpful here. He wrote a commentary on the Ten Commandments. And in reference to the Hebrew language used in the Sixth Commandment, he said this, and I quote, The Hebrew text indicates that this commandment is dealing with unlawful, and he highlighted that word, unlawful killing. That is to say, with killing that violates justice. The word used here never appears in context involving God putting someone to death or putting to death an enemy in wartime, nor does this command prohibit a killing that has been ordered by the court. Then he continues and says, the sixth commandment is speaking about or forbidding a very specific kind of killing, one that does not serve society, but rather violates society, end quote. It is quite clear that the sixth commandment has a double edge to it. It forbids people from killing others unlawfully, but it also protects people from being killed unlawfully by emphasizing the necessity of justice. It is all embedded in the commandment itself. The sixth commandment states the prohibition, but it also provides the protection. It has to. And all for the sake of what? Justice, which is an essential component for the flourishing of human life. You remove justice, you have anarchy. Therefore, in our understanding of the sixth commandment, we must also understand the underlying reality of man's fallenness, depravity. The third biblical uh, truth is this. The biblical understanding of murder takes into account man's teleology. Teleology. You want me to spell that for you? It's T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Teleology. What is the teleology of men? Well, it's the purpose for which he was created. The end for which he was created. We were made for life, not for death. We were made for life, never for death. This life was the original purpose for which we were created. That was the end goal. That was the telos of man. Hence the word teleology. Death was introduced as a result of sin, but it did not belong to the original design in the Garden of Eden. And by the way, let me explain something to you now that we're talking about the telos of men, the, the purpose of men. 
This is precisely why. This is precisely why in a fallen world like our world, where sin is rampant, there will be an element of self-destruction of the human race. There will be an element of self-destruction in which unlawful killing makes lawful killing a necessity. That it is. You have to realize that sin introduces a vicious cycle. We can't escape it. Unlawful killing that violates justice necessarily creates the necessity for lawful killing, for the preservation of justice. We are in a vicious cycle. It is a fallen world. Sin is rampant. This will involve the element of self-destruction, but this is why you need to understand that this was not a part of the original design. Death was not a part of the original design. He was created, man, we were created for life. And in that sense, death is unnatural to our telos, our purpose for existence. Number four, the biblical understanding of murder takes into account man's soteriology. Here's another wonderful word. Soteriology is the technical word for salvation. A Christian view of murder has to take this massive reality into account. And I can offer you explanation by way of com a comparison. When the angels fell from the estate in which they were created, to use confessional language, what happened to them? They were condemned to damnation, eternal damnation. Not so with men. When man fell from the state in which he was created, in other words, when man rejected his God-given teleology in order to embrace a Satan-inspired one, what did God do? Well, he provided a savior. He provided a savior. And not just any savior, but his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became like one of us and he died for us. He did not die for angels. He died for humanity. Behold God's love for humanity. And fifth, the biblical understanding of murder takes into account man's composition. Composition. What are we? Well, we're both body and soul. Body and soul. In light of this, you know, one of the biggest, what is one of the biggest enemies to the keeping of the sixth commandment in society, in any society? Atheism. Atheism. This is due to the fact that atheism naturally leads to something technically called metaphysical naturalism or materialism, which claims that only matter exists and that there is no such thing as the inner man, the soul, or that which is immaterial. Therefore, Within this worldview, naturalistic worldview, atheistic worldview, guess what? You can come up with all kinds of justifications for the killing of the unborn in the womb. If babies, and anyone, if babies are nothing more than matter, then killing a baby can be likened to breaking a pencil or smashing a window. They are just matter. But listen to David. 
in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, which for me, this one verse should end the conversation about abortion, abortion for any Christian. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, which I don't know why I say that. If you're a Christian, you have to believe in the Bible. If you're a Christian, this should end the conversation. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you, David says, for you, God, formed my inward parts. Who? Well, God formed my inward parts. You, you, God, needed me together in my mother's womb. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows, knows it very well. You know why that should end the conversation about abortion? Because the baby in the womb is not an extension of the mother's body. Not according to the Bible. It is God's personal creation. It is God's personal creation. What is formed in the womb does not belong to the mother. It belongs to God. What is formed in the womb does not belong to the mother, belongs to God, and it is both body and soul, material and immaterial. This is the Christian worldview. We are both body and soul. We are made up of that which is visible, the body, and also of that which is invisible, the soul. We live the outward life in the body, but never separated from the inward life of the soul. This is why Paul could pray that the Ephesians would be strengthened in their inner being, that invisible side of humanity. But you may ask at this point, how is this relevant to our considerations of the sixth commandment? Well, this leads us to our third point, which is this, the proper application. The proper application. What is the proper application? Well, two words, thought and deed. Thought and deed, right? Having a proper biblical theology of murder is essential for understanding the application of the sixth commandment. Our uniqueness, our fallenness, our teleology, our soteriology, our composition, all of it provides the framework for a comprehensive view of murder. And murder always begins as an invisible reality. One clear example of this, a classical example of this, is, of course, the first murder ever recorded in human history. Cain and who else? Abel, the two brothers. In Genesis chapter 4, we are given the progression of this sin. According to Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And only three verses later, we read, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Murder always begins as an inner reality, always hidden from our physical eyes. Since we are both body and soul, the sin of murder by necessity starts in the soul. The Lord Jesus spoke of this in the following way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The point is clear. Murder and anger are both liable to the same punishment. Therefore, murder in the body cannot ultimately be separated from anger in the heart. Hence, 
Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, where we read, but now you must then put them all away. What? Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Why? Because all these are spiritual and invisible manifestations of murder in the soul. They are a big deal. In short, and as the kids learn on Monday during VBS, God looks at the heart first. Your heart matters. That's where murder begins. That's where murder begins. Are there important and severe gospel warnings for us here? Now notice what I said. Gospel, not law warnings. Gospel warnings. I believe there are. And I'll get to that in a moment. Now, none of this denies that murder also includes actual killing of the body. So, I'm going to get into the more difficult stuff, because I know this is difficult because I can be misunderstood, but I, I don't do this because of uh, pleasing of man, but I do this because I want to please the Lord. In this country, abortion is the number one pandemic. Okay, let's be clear on this. In this country, abortion is the number one pandemic. Let me give you some numbers. We are all interested in numbers now. We like to look at numbers now. Let me give you some numbers. Consider these numbers. In their 2019-2020 report, Planned Parenthood proudly announced that they had provided 354,000 871 abortion services. Shockingly and undeniably, the biggest threat to human life is not a virus. Rather, it is the unrestrained evil flowing out of the human heart. It is the biggest threat to human life. And this is a real problem. I feel like we have been distracted from this. This is a real problem. No mask can take this away. There's no vaccine for this. Now, I'm going to say something that is going to sound controversial, and I don't mean it that way. So let me make a few points of clarification. I believe COVID is a real threat. And I believe COVID can kill certain people, vulnerable people. It's a real threat. I'm grateful for doctors and hospitals that are doing everything they can to help people with COVID. Even in our midst, we have people that are suffering from COVID. And let me say also that what I'm about to say, I'm not applying this argument to anyone I know personally. Any of my friends, brothers and sisters whom I trust, love, and respect dearly. But let me tell you something. I want to sort of... Uh, open my heart to you. I want to open my heart to you. I think most of us, if we're honest, we have dealt with certain skepticism when it comes to COVID. I think if we're honest, most of us have skepticism, especially when it comes to COVID mandates and rules, mass social distancing, things like that. I'm going to explain to you, and this is from my heart. Let me tell you the theological fountain of any, whatever skepticism I have personally had regarding COVID rules and restrictions. 
They have to do with the sixth commandment. They have to do with the sixth commandment. Let me explain. I have a difficult time. I have a very difficult time believing that the same politicians and political leaders who have sought to legalize, defend, promote, and even protect the murder of the unborn have a true interest in the preservation of life. I hope you understand that I'm not applying, again, I'm not applying this argument either to COVID itself as a virus or to any of you in this room. I'm speaking about people in positions of authority. I'm applying this argument to those who are in positions of power, who have demonstrated absolute disregard for human life in its most vulnerable form through the legalization, promotion, and protection of abortion, which is murder, and who are now telling me to care for the life of others. I'm sorry. As a Christian, I'm struggling. I am. The Bible has a name for that. It's called hypocrisy. COVID kills. Yes, it does. But so does abortion. And in much, much greater numbers. I'll be honest. If I had one minute... If I had one minute with some of our political leaders, I would want to say, I would want to say this. The day you put a stop to the creation of the culture of death through abortion will be the day I will have personally an easier time believing that you actually care about human life. Abortion is the ongoing breaking of the sixth commandment and it's been legalized protected and promoted that needs to stop so this takes us to the last point the indispensable framework what is the indispensable framework for understanding the sixth commandment the gospel the gospel in the time that i have left I want to make a very critical point that you cannot miss. There is a sense in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the good news of his death and resurrection, frees us from the condemnation brought about by the sixth commandment because we have all broken the sixth commandment. You know that, right? All it takes is the anger of the heart. Christ came to free us from this condemnation, the curse of the law. This means that the sixth commandment also brings condemnation upon all of us, for we have broken it. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly placed himself under the punishment and the righteous wrath of God and took upon himself what we deserved for breaking the sixth commandment. Therefore, Jesus does bring us freedom from the condemnation and curse of the law that stood against us. It is true. But please do not miss the other side of the coin. What is that? Well, as I said at the beginning, the sixth commandment is summed up in what? What is the summary of the sixth commandment? Love your neighbor. Love for neighbor. Now listen to these words out of the mouth of Jesus as recorded in John chapter 13, verse 34. 
Listen to this. A new commandment I give you. Do you hear that? A new commandment I give you. What is that new commandment? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I must ask this question. How is that commandment new? How is that a new commandment? I ask that question because of what I read in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. Listen to what it says. This is Leviticus. This is Old Testament. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, he says to Israel, you shall do no wrong to him. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. This is Leviticus. This is way before the New Testament. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So I ask again, how is this commandment to love one another new? It's been around for a while. It was there before the time of Jesus. Were not the Israelites instructed to do just that in the book of Leviticus? Were they not supposed to love their neighbor as themselves? Then why did the Lord Jesus say, a new commandment I give you? Here's how this is a new commandment. The foundational principles upon which this ancient commandment is now built are new. What are the foundational principles in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Covenant? Well, in the Old Covenant, consider once again Leviticus 19.34. Love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. What is the foundational principle for love in the Old Covenant? Deliverance from the land of Egypt. God demonstrated his love for them by saving them from slavery. Consequently, they were to love others as themselves. Let me ask you this. What are the foundational principles of love for neighbor in the new covenant? Well, they are basically two and they are greater than the old covenant. What are the foundational principles for our love for one another now? Two, incarnational love and sacrificial salvation from sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the new covenant, we are also told to love others as ourselves, but this time on the basis of the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and gave himself up for us, we have been given a greater salvation by a greater savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the command to love one another is not weaker. It is now much, much stronger than before. So the commandment is the same. The theological force behind it is new. It is the gospel itself. So let me give you a few gospel warnings. Gospel warnings. As I said, I would. Let me give you two. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus through faith, our duty to love neighbor as oneself is even greater than before. Is even greater than before. And the sixth commandment takes a whole new dimension. The fact that you are no longer condemned by the sixth commandment does not mean that you can do away with it. On the contrary, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving our neighbor acquires a new and greater force than ever before. Mark Jones, in his book, Antinomianism, put it like this, and I quote, 
because of the greater indicatives of the new covenant, the imperatives are not relaxed, but in fact are strengthened, end quote. That's the first warning. Don't think that the gospel relaxes the sixth commandment. It doesn't. In fact, it strengthens it. The second warning is this. Are you a repentant Christian? Are you a repentant Christian? Do you take repentance seriously? Do you repent of your anger toward your brother or sister in Christ? Or do you counsel yourself something like this? Well, as long as I don't actually kill my brother and sister, what I do with my thoughts and emotions does not matter. Your heart matters. And your repentance must include your inner life. So let me give you a roadmap for repentance and for application. And we'll, we'll finish with this. Since love is the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. Since love is the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. Consider with me the leading characteristic of love as described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is, what is the first description? Love is what? Patient. Do you remember what patience is? I, I, I described it for you uh, many months ago, so you probably don't remember. You know what patience is? Is to have a large capacity for enduring offense. Large capacity for enduring offense. And the leading characteristic of love is a large capacity for enduring offense. Love is patient and kind. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. So let's do a little exercise here. Let us take the sixth commandment and apply these gospel words to the commandment and see how they fit. You shall be patient. You shall be patient. You shall be kind. You shall not be irritable. You shall not be resentful. You shall not rejoice at wrongdoing, but you shall rejoice in the truth. You shall bear all things. You shall endure all things. Why? Because, my brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. And if in this you are failing, then, one, then of this you must repent. Walking in spiritual freedom means walking in brotherly love. Now let me finish with this. At the end of time, at the end of time, God himself will kill. At the end of time, God himself will kill. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus warned with these words, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What type of killing is this? What type of destruction is this? It is the killing of justice. It is the killing of justice coming from a perfect and just king. God will make everything right. Sin will be punished through the eternal destruction of both body and soul in hell. Wrath 
is coming. Wrath is coming. What is your duty right now, my Christian friend? What is our duty right now? What do we do in the meantime? We keep the sixth commandment by telling men, women, and children to escape the wrath to come. That is the greatest demonstration of love is to share the gospel of Christ. We need to tell men, women, and children to escape the wrath to come and the eternal death by coming in faith to the crucified Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So if this morning you are here and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to tell you, I need to remind you that wrath is coming and you need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. You need to believe in Christ for he died on the cross for our sins and the wrath of God fell upon him for the sake of sinners. So escape the wrath to come. Do so now. So we love our neighbor by speaking biblical truth with boldness and with compassion. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this simple reminder Help us, Father, to understand what it means. You shall not murder. And help us, Lord, to love souls, to love men, women, and children enough to proclaim to them the victory of Christ over sin, hell, death, and Satan. May we never fear, may we never fear that which can destroy the flesh, but always walk in the fear of you the God of all universe, the God of all justice and truth. And Father, we pray for the healing of a nation in which the murder of the innocent has become a common practice. Father, we pray for the revival of the church that we may boldly proclaim that there is forgiveness and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And all these things we pray in his wonderful and powerful name. Amen.